Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello again, this is Chris Hostler along with Mary Townsend coming at you with the latest and greatest in infectious diseases podcasts. You may remember us from our last podcast about C. diff. Yeah, I heard it made quite the splash. We really exploded onto the scene with that one. But that was just a drop in the toilet bowl compared to what we have today. It's time to talk about Staph aureus bacteremia. I don't know how you get away with these jokes. Probably because I'm a staff physician. The VA did this to themselves when they came up with the title. Oh, Lord. I know, right? What kind of God would allow this to go on? An unmerciful one. Okay, yeah. So anyway, I'm Mary Townsend, the infectious diseases pharmacist at the Durham VA. I'm the clinical pharmacist for our ID consult service, the pharmacy director of the antimicrobial decision support team at the VA, which is our antimicrobial stewardship program, and the clinical pharmacy supervisor for the inpatient and the specialty pharmacist group for the Durham VA. And I'm still Chris Hostler. I'm a staff physician in infectious diseases at America's Hospital. I'm also the associate hospital epidemiologist and medical director for the ADST, our stewardship program. And at Duke, I'm an assistant professor of medicine for the School of Medicine and a physician epidemiologist for the Duke Center for Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infection Prevention. All right, so down to business. Today, we're talking about Staph aureus bacteremia. So let's start off with the case. Okay, so here we go. So let's say we have a 47-year-old veteran with no significant medical history who comes in with four days of fevers, shaking chills, anorexia, and malaise. He uses IV heroin on a daily basis, and blood cultures obtained on emission grow GPCs and clusters in one of two sets. The biofire detects Staphylococcus. It also detects Staphylococcus aureus and does not detect MEGA. What do you make of this? This gentleman has MSSA bacteremia. There are a couple of things I want to unpack from what you just said. First, don't ever be fooled by one out of two positive cultures and think it's a contaminant. Staph aureus bacteremia is always, period, clinically, period, significant, period. Exclamation point. That might be too much punctuation. Anyway, you get the point. A culture positive for staph aureus is never a contaminant. Second, I noted you said shaking chills and not just chills. This is what I care about and how I ask patients. Seemingly every patient in the world will say, oh sure, I've had chills, but very few have had teeth chattering, glasses go flying off your face, can't stop shaking chills, which is actually predictive of bacteremia and what we care about more than the momentary chill that most patients have every now and then. The third thing to talk about is the biofire. I want to take a quick aside because this is a common area of confusion and misunderstanding. We've been reporting the blood culture ID panel, or BCID panel, from biofire on all positive blood cultures since December 2015. I understand Duke recently rolled this out as well, so you'll see BCID reports on both sides of the street. These are rapid PCRs done on all positive blood cultures that can speed up identification of some common organisms and resistance genes. There are 27 targets on the BCID panel, including three resistance genes, five yeast, eight gram-positive targets, and 11 gram-negative targets. Now, some of the bacterial targets are genus-species targets, like E. coli. Some are genus-only, like Staphylococcus. And there's one family-level target, Enterobacteriaceae. One of the biggest areas of confusion seems to be clinicians believing that the culture is polymicrobial when multiple targets are detected. But since the targets may be subsets of other targets, you can have multiple targets detected for a monomicrobial culture. 
For instance, E. coli bacteremia will flag positive for both E. coli and Enterobacteriaceae since E. coli is a member of the Enterobacteriaceae family. In this instance, the patient has MSSA bacteremia as evidenced by his Staphylococcus and Staphylococcus aureus targets being detected and his MEK-A gene not being detected since MEK-A is the gene that confers methicillin resistance. All right, so now that we've established that he has MSSA bacteremia, what do we do next? The evaluation of staph bacteremia is really focused on identifying a source, evaluating for deep-seated infection, and treating for a prolonged course to maximize the likelihood of eradication. Of course, you don't have to do this alone. Every patient with staph aureus bacteremia should have an ID consult. There are a multitude of retrospective and prospective studies demonstrating that concordance with guideline-based recommendations and outcomes are superior when ID is consulted for staph aureus bacteremia. Not to mention that it's mandatory on both sides of the street. When you're evaluating somebody with staph aureus bacteremia, there are some basic things you should do at the outset, as well as every day during your exam. First, we want to know if the patient has any hardware or lines. If these can be removed, they need to be. Staph aureus is a really sticky organism, and once it's in contact with prosthetic material, it remains there and can be exceedingly difficult and sometimes impossible to eradicate with antibiotics alone. Second, we want to know if there's any evidence of metastatic disease. This involves a careful history and physical, focusing on any new joint pain, back pain, changes in vision, and looking at the hands and feet to identify stigmata of endocarditis. That history and physical should be repeated every day. Now, when ID sees the patient, we're looking at stratifying the patient as either uncomplicated or complicated staph aureus bacteremia. Uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia is really rare because it requires that you meet all of the following criteria. One, no echocardiographic evidence of infective endocarditis. Two, no indwelling prosthetic materials present. Three, follow-up blood cultures drawn two to three days after starting IV therapy and removing the source are negative. Four, the patient defervesces within 48 to 72 hours after starting IV therapy and removing the source. And five, there is no evidence of metastatic infection. Now the question we get all the time is, does this patient need a TEE or will a TTE suffice? The bottom line is that we almost always recommend a TEE. Some ID physicians uh, would say it's reasonable to forego a TEE if the windows on TTE are adequate to see the valves, the staph aureus bacteremia was nosocomial, blood cultures are sterile within four days, there are no permanent intracardiac devices, the patient isn't on dialysis, there are no clinical signs of metastatic infection, the removable source of infection was removed if present, and the patient defervesces within 72 hours. As you might imagine, a very small percentage of patients with staph aureus bacteremia meet all these criteria. Okay, so now that you've evaluated the patient, how are we going to treat this, Mary? So the drugs of choice for MSSA bacteremia are either an anti-staphylococcal penicillin, such as nafcillin, given as 2 grams IV every 4 to 6 hours, or 12 grams continuous infusion over 24 hours, or you could use a first-generation cephalosporin, such as cefazolin, given as 2 grams IV every 8 hours. Cefazolin does have some advantages over nafcillin in that it has a more convenient dosing scheme, especially in the outpatient setting, so for those patients going home on IV antibiotics. It's generally better tolerated compared to nafcillin, so there's less incidence of rash, neutropenia, and interstitial nephritis, as well as LFT abnormalities. In addition to that, cefazolin has a lower sodium content, so patients with heart failure, that may be a concern, um, and also the diluent volumes are smaller with cefazolin. 
One advantage that is worth mentioning, though, in regards to nafcillin is that if you are needing CNS penetration, then we would pick nafcillin over cefazolin, as cefazolin has poor CNS penetration. It's also important to remember that cefazolin does require adjustments for renal dysfunction, whereas nafcillin does not. Alternatively, if a patient is unable to take a beta-lactam due to allergy or intolerance, then vancomycin or daptomycin are also options. However, it is considered to be less effective compared to beta-lactams. So with that, I will ask Chris, like, how long are we going to treat these patients? Well, if they meet criteria for uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia, the patient needs a minimum of two weeks of IV antibiotics from the date of the first negative set of cultures. If they have complicated staph aureus bacteremia, we're treating for four to six weeks. And the differentiator there is whether they have evidence of endocarditis or something like vertebral osteomyelitis that warrants a prolonged course of therapy. We keep a close eye on these patients in ID clinic because recurrence is really common, especially if there's any aberration in therapy. Something every ID physician learns early on in fellowship is to have a great deal of respect for staph aureus. So now, what if we had an elderly patient that came in with three days of malaise, anorexia, low-grade fevers, and other nonspecific symptoms that led the physicians in the ED to order a urine culture, which then subsequently grew MRSA? Do they have an MRSA UTI? Thanks for bringing that up. Staph aureus in the urine should always prompt an evaluation for bacteremia, because it's usually an indicator of bacteremia. So once you draw blood cultures and confirm that he does indeed have MRSA bacteremia, the evaluation is pretty much the same as it is for MSSA bacteremia. Just know that the outcomes are worse for MRSA bacteremia than they are for MSSA bacteremia. So being diligent in our evaluation is doubly important. Of course, the antibiotics we use are different too. Mary, want to touch on that? Sure. So there are several different options here that we could use, and decisions about which drug to select are based off of patient characteristics such as size of the patient, as well as renal function and cost. Uh, vancomycin is typically going to be uh, the first-line drug that we use. The dosing is 20 mg per kg, loading dose followed by 15 mg per kg per dose with the frequency based off the estimated creatinine clearance. Uh, target troughs for bacteremia are typically 15 to 20. However, newer vancomycin guidelines are pending publication. Um, the newer publication actually discusses using AUC to MIC as a dosing and monitoring parameter. And we actually don't really have time to discuss this entire concept on this podcast, but you can be rest assured that there can be an entire podcast dedicated to the dosing of vancomycin using the AUC to MIC uh, ratio. Sounds like a blast. Other things, for a pharmacist it is, other things to monitor for with vancomycin uh, would include nephrotoxicity, Redman syndrome has also been reported, which is a histamine-mediated uh, reaction of flushing during or after the infusion. With those patients, we would recommend to slow down the infusion, and then there is also ototoxicity. Alternatively, you could use daptomycin, typically dosed at 8 to 10 mg per kg daily with adjustments in frequency uh, based off of the estimated creatinine clearance. So for those patients with an estimated creatinine clearance of under 30, uh, you would have to space out the dosing. Monitoring with uh, daptomycin includes baseline and weekly CKIs in addition to serum creatinine. 
A third agent that has more emerging data is the fifth generation cephalosporin, ceftaroline. Most of the data with ceftaroline and MRSA bacteremia is limited to small case series. However, I do believe that it is an option for some patients who can't tolerate vancomycin or daptomycin. Monitoring for ceftaroline would include serum creatinine as it is renally adjusted and a CBC with diff as prolonged therapy has been associated with neutropenia. Great. So the bottom line for all of this is that staph aureus bacteremia is always clinically significant, should always prompt a thorough evaluation for metastatic infection, almost always requires a prolonged course of IV antibiotics, and requires consultation with ID. Now to kill the rest of the time, some staph jokes. Hey Mary, what do you call soldiers for hire who have abscesses? Um, I don't know. Mercenaries. Okay, we're clearly out of time here. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening and just to, to say that the views and opinions stated during this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the Durham VA.